Well, let me draw your attention to the book of Colossians in chapter 1. I'll be reading from verses 9 through verses 14. This is known as Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. And so God says to us in his word, starting in verse 9, for the blessing of the saints. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Well, I hope you have all heard by now, but the iconic pop band Hanson dropped a mega album last fall, a mere 20 years after they melted the faces off of teenagers everywhere with the hit Umbop. And to celebrate this triumph of music around the world, they took some of their greatest hits and made an album where they sang their same songs, but they rearranged them and combined them with the Tulsa Symphony, playing their notes. And it's a beautiful album on its own, because why wouldn't Umbop go with strings and trumpets and horns? Now, it sounds great, but more than that, like any great album, this album seeks to tell a story from beginning to end. And for Hanson, it's the story of their lives 20-plus years into the music industry. Divided into two parts, this album, the front part portraying the early and idealistic years, and then the back is the harsher, more honest, Ecclesiastes, if you will, years of their lives growing up, having kids, fighting back the tears. Each side begins with a short song called Reaching for the Sky, both part one and part two. So listen to the words of Reaching for the Sky, part one. There's a boy I used to know. He was always searching high and low. Others looked and wondered why. He said, I am reaching for the sky. They said, good will come to those who wait. Don't think too big, just know your place. People don't belong in clouds or space. It's just an empty quest for ego's sake. But he responded, he said, I'll be reaching for the sky. I have to see how high it goes. Do the stars shine brighter there? Can you really walk on air? It rhymes, so that's how you know it's a good song. While others, they won't even try, I'll be reaching for the sky. Part one ends but is carried on with songs like Joyful Noise, Where's the Love, Umbop, Me, Myself, and I. But then part two comes, and listen to the change of the boy's tenor. After this comes songs like Battle Cry, Broken Angel, Breakdown, and No Rest for the Weary. As the boy grew to a man, he built tall ladders to ascend, and those around him said with spite, Risk of failure isn't worth the fight. But he never gave up power to the sound of fear or twist of fate. He didn't care how long it took. He said, I'll be reaching on my dying day. Because I can't tell my heart don't try. I'll keep reaching for the sky. I am reaching for the sky. Now, the reason I bring up this masterpiece in music is because it captures the normal aspiration 
of people. Despite all the odds, we desire glory. And in my opinion, the soul of the Southwest is, is the combination of intrigue and aspiration and a Wild West adventure-seeking. And this is cool, but also very, very dangerous. Is the reason why I bring it up. Reaching and searching and having a name in life is good, but man, it can get really, really bad if you are reaching at the wrong thing or searching in the wrong area or if your aim isn't at the right person. The author of our scripture in the book of Colossians this morning is writing to a church who he is proud of who he delights in the state of their current life, and he's overjoyed at hearing the effect of the message of Jesus being preached and people being saved and the church being strengthened. So he says in verse 9, As soon as we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you because of all the great things that we're hearing about. But he writes this letter to encourage them, guide them, and also warn them of this very common temptation that we often see Jesus as like a starter pack for the rest of our lives. That it's an opportunity to almost inject something that's good, but we need to get to level two and level three and level four. And so the the natural inkling of the fallen man or the fleshly man is to start searching for things around us to give us almost a better understanding of the world. And so he's calling their attention to be focused on a certain person and to be filled with a certain person. There was a philosophy that was running around this church that bases itself in the idea that the way to higher or better learning is secret knowledge. Or there are mysteries out there that if you just seek to understand them, then your life in Jesus can be even better. And that might sound okay or decent because why wouldn't you want to keep on growing But if we ever try to grow beyond who God is, then the scriptures are clear and just evidence of people's lives are clear. We start falling down the mountain that we were trying so hard to climb up in the first place. Because this idea that was running around the church at this time is that God is is far removed from his creation and he doesn't much care about it because he didn't fully create everything in front of him. And, And in fact, the created order were just little sparks of his goodness that they were longing to be caught by him. And so, so God, in his mere kindness, sent, sent someone named Jesus, not God, but someone named Jesus, to draw people back to who God is. And so you can see that there are semblances of those explanations that, that look somewhat like Christianity, but if those are true, then everything else doesn't matter. If Jesus was just sent to bring our attention to something, then we're not in a good place. If we're just little sparks here and there, and and the world is ultimately evil and bad, and, and God is far off, then what is the point of life anyway? This idea that was running around the church at the time was that salvation comes from, or us being saved in God's grace comes from us attaining a higher and higher knowledge. Like there are several degrees that we can obtain to seek God's favor. And so what Paul does is he writes this letter to encourage them and he starts out by praying that they will lean into their faith and that they would continue to see the God of the scriptures and the son of the cross and be fueled by the spirit. Paul prays that this church would look at the source and the content of that source for true knowledge, not beyond those two things. This form of knowledge comes 
according to God's ultimate will and for the spiritual betterment of God's people. So, I think when you look at this passage, you see two big things that seep to the top. These these desires out of Paul's heart as he's praying for the church. And as my parting words, this would be my desire for DSC and how you would grow. So if I were to ever come back 10, 20 years from now, that you would be first filled by God himself. So Paul wants, if you're using an outline, he wants them to aspire to be filled. And we see that in verses 9 through 12. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now being filled doesn't mean or it doesn't refer to the, like, a, like a physical filling like you might fill up a cup or you might fill up a bathtub, but a spiritual filling. In the letters from Paul, the same verb is used to refer to people who are being characterized by certain attributes, whether good or bad. People can be filled with unrighteousness. It says in Romans 1.29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. Or they're filled with good things like joy and peace. We see in Romans 15, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. All of this bounding in hope comes from being filled with all joy and peace. Or goodness in Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So what Paul is desiring for this church to be is first to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. He asks that they would be characterized by knowing God's will. Paul talks about God's will in two ways. We might see this in the New Testament. There are two ways to understand the way that Paul talks about God's will. The first one is to understand God's decreed will. Like an unaltered, redemptive, historical plan. The will makes Paul an apostle. God wills it, and it happens. God wills people to be predestined to adoption, and it happens. God wills certain things to happen, and they happen. He decrees this. From from his mouth, the power of the changing actions come about. Or in this case, a second way to see God's will played out is his commanding will like his commands for his people to obey him. So to understand God's will is to understand what God wants his people to do. So let me give you two examples from the scriptures, Romans chapter 2, verse 18. And know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and on and on. So when people wander around, as you and I might often do, trying to not only seek the will of God, but also to do the will of God or to be in the will of God, we understand this in two ways. First of all, his declarative will or his decreed will and then his commanding will. And here we can see very simply, what does it mean to be in the will of God or to be filled with the will of God? Well, we can look at the scriptures and just ask ourselves, what does God's word say? So John Gill, a famous dead Baptist theologian, is really good and concise at saying things that are so obvious that you wonder why you have to read such a big book to read about these things. So he says God's commanding will is that which is spoken of in Scripture. It's what, we should, be done, it's what should be done by men, which is desirable that they might have knowledge of and be complete in Christ-likeness. God, by the declaration of his will, shows what he approves of. 
So for Paul to write these people a letter and to say in his prayer that he is wishing and longing for them to be filled with the knowledge of God, what he is simply doing is trying to turn their attention to what the will of the Lord is, which can be found in our book, in our scriptures. Paul wants Christians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will that we can find in the scriptures. Now, all of that to say, keep in mind the tension of their age. Growth is through these mysteries that are outside of them. Now, think in our age. If you ask the common man, how would you grow in wisdom and gain understanding? We might respond to you with an aspiration for understanding high mathematics or humanities or understand how force works or understand how how nature links arms with other pieces of nature or maybe you might gain experience and grow in wisdom and understanding through traveling the world or picking up a hobby or even falling in love. Those are the experienced people or, or those who understand the soul. Now hear me, Paul is not saying that things outside of faith are bad. He He actually says the opposite. There are many things that God has given us practically or materially, which is good, but they pale in comparison to what is holy. So if we want to aspire to godliness or Christ-likeness, we need to focus our aspirations on what God has declared good, and by that we are filling ourselves with the knowledge of God's will. If I want to grow in godliness, if that was my desire for 2019, yet I'm spending time doing other things, not pursuing the Lord's will through his word, then what Paul is saying is that I'm just spinning wheels or I'm wasting time or maybe even I'm throwing myself in heretical danger by missing the mark completely. So he says, be filled with the knowledge of God's will. His word is our delight, we see in the Psalms. His word is our counselor. It's our ballast. It's our compass. Paul wants them to be filled with it. So my parting words to you would be, fill yourself with the knowledge of God's will. And you can. You don't have to have a degree for it. You don't have to be in 85 Bible studies for it. You don't even have to have the perfect coffee at Starbucks but you have to plant your face in the word and let the spirit come alive in your soul. Second we see in this this section in verses nine through 12 is, is he longs for them to have skills in order to work in godliness. Paul not only promotes pursuing God through the word, but how he uses the word to make his command. See the words in all spiritual and understanding in the text there in verses nine? The wording alludes first to Exodus 31, and then second to Exodus 35, and then 1 Kings 7, and even parts of it in Isaiah 11, because there are these texts that one, have the Spirit, and two, have the Spirit filling, and then three, links the Spirit and His filling work to wisdom and understanding and knowledge for God's people. So the Exodus passages say that God filled the Israelites with His Spirit to have the skill to build the tabernacle in order to bring about understanding of God's mysterious ways. Or 1 Kings 7 says the same thing about building Solomon's temple. Isaiah 11 refers to the future king on the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of knowledge. So all these texts, Exodus 31, 1 Kings 7, Exodus 35, and even Isaiah 11 enforce this theme of God doing a work 
in meeting his people where they are in order to build them up in such a way that they will build up the kingdom of God. So when God meets with his people and pours out his spirit, the effect of that is a unifying approach of God's people being built up. So here we have this case, not just where it's like, oh, that's a cool connection to all these random Old Testament passages, but see, see this theology of God meeting with his people go throughout the Bible. He's meeting with them in a tabernacle, and then he's meeting with them in a temple, and there he, or here he has a spirit wanting to be poured out to them so that they might build up the church in order to fight off what is false and untrue. The point of the illusion in Colossians 1.9 is that Paul is praying that God would fill believers with the Spirit so that they would build their moral, ethical, and principled lives skillfully for the sake of God's glory going out through the church. So I'm giving away a little bit of where the sermon is going, but what we see here is a case where, where God is filling the mind of his people in order to change the hearts of his people so that the outflow of a changed heart is actions that make Christians look different than the world around them. But not just to look different, but to show things that are, that are not common in the world. They're going to show things like love or patience or grace or mercy. And, and the outcome of that is first starting with filling the mind with the will of God so that it penetrates the heart so much to where the heart changes and the actions are just an outflow of God's mercy coming in. So it's cool to see all these things happening. God is doing the work and his inspired content for the joy of his people is the building up of his church, which is so, uh, I think, just crushing the philosophies that are trying to infiltrate the church at the beginning. And here we see the greater focus of the book of Colossians, that Christ is the ultimate source of wisdom, so he is the only thing that needs to be worshipped. The main point of his prayer in verse 9 is to build toward the readers of being filled with the wise and perceptive knowledge of God's will, but not just for the sake of being really, really smart or being really, really wise or having nine philosophy degrees, but that our actions are serving the Lord and serving other people. So we see this and we wonder, why is he doing all this? Well, the, the point of this happens in verse 10. Why does he want this church to be filled with the knowledge of God? Well, look at verse 10. It says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Joel Beakey, a commentator and theologian, says the true test of religious learning is its ability to transform behavior. Precisely what philosophy lacks it's one thing to be really sharp in understanding how people work or, or how people might work within groups of other people, but it's one thing if you just understand all that and just remain on your couch. But what Christianity does to its fullest is that it brings us up out of our chair and into the lives of others and into a place of worship of the Lord himself. This is the first outcome of aspiring to be filled with knowledge, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We see this in other cases that Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life, not just resting in Christ's goodness, but also taking action with it. Or later on in Romans 8, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or Galatians 5, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the, des- the desires of the flesh. Or Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And lastly, Philippians 3, verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The Colossians are to walk in a manner that is worthy of the one whom they confess as the Lord. And this will become easier and easier as they are filling themselves with the mind of Christ or as they are filling themselves with the, word, with the will of the Lord. Adding to the point that the apostle prays that they will please him in every way. Something that causes many of us to buckle because if anything, I want to please myself. When I wake up on a Saturday, I don't think about Brooke. I don't think about the dog. I don't even think about breakfast. I think about what do I want to do? And here, Paul is saying, when you fill your mind with the things of the Lord that are declared and commanded to be obeyed, it it causes you to walk in a way that is different. And if you understand the Lord's will and you understand the Lord's ways, he becomes so desirous of us to please. Remember who is being talked about here. Jesus himself, the exalted Savior, who, who lowered himself to earth in order to be a sacrifice for man so that we can be redeemed or saved forever and ever, so that our lives are not worthless, but are rather eternally valuable and resting in his grace. So when we see all that he has done for us, it becomes a natural instinct for us to go, what can I do for you? And how come I get to be part of it? And that's so incredible for us to think about. We are not left without the example of Jesus here in striving to please the Father. Romans 15 tells us and shows us that the biblical love is never selfish, but is always giving. Jesus himself was not coming to earth to please himself, but Jesus himself came to earth to please the Heavenly Father through his life and ultimately through his death. So Paul prays that their minds would be filled so that their hearts would be transformed to please the good Father. And this already starting in verse 9 and verse 10, starts to separate Christianity from the divide of the, of the powers that were infiltrating this church. All of the other things around Jesus are just small compared to his glory, but also small compared to his purpose. But his prayer keeps going to a practical outcome. Here we see there, there are four things that we can aim to align ourselves with Paul's prayer. He prays for four qualities of a Christ-centered life, bearing fruit, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened for endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks. Believers are to bear fruit in every good work. And this is different of what was being infiltrating the church back then because all of the things in creation were evil, like the rocks in your backyard had this evil energy in them. And also your friends around you had this evilness inside of them. So you were, you were called to flee everything around you and to be summoned to these mystical approaches of life. And here Paul is saying to bear fruit in every good work, in every place that you are in, in every office that you might find yourself. Your life might be boring or sad. Your office might be terrible. Your life might feel like a, like a waste, but here Paul is calling to these young Christians and he's saying, bear fruit in everything that you do. 
wherever God has placed you, for whatever reason you may not know, but he has placed you there to please the Father, and he's powering you to do so by filling your mind with the loveliness of God. And the extent is that more people will know and that you may enjoy. Secondly, believers are also to grow in the knowledge of God as they respond to that personal relationship with God, which they already have. So the relationship will grow and their understanding of him will deepen. I I was thinking the other day, not about this passage, but Brooke and I were doing something, probably like we were probably just at a coffee shop doing nothing. And I thought to myself, man, it it is way easier to enjoy Brooke today than it ever was four years ago when we first got married. And I really liked her four years ago. In fact, I liked her so much that I married her. You know, but now it just becomes easier and easier to be around her because our relationship grows and grows and grows. And as we're filling our minds with things of the Lord, as, we're, as our hearts are being transformed to more like His, growing in the knowledge of God becomes something that is not only easier for us to aim for, but it becomes way more pleasurable. Every day, the quiet time becomes sweeter and sweeter. Even when we might not understand all the fullness of Leviticus 4, we understand more greatly the God who didn't leave us without his voice calling out for his people. So second, believers are to grow in the knowledge of God. Third, believers are to be strengthened with all power. The standards set for the Colossians are high, seemingly impossible, But this is not the case because Paul heaps up terms for power and strength to stress that nothing short of God's almighty power at work within them will enable them to live in a way that is pleasing to him. And he gives them this power and he strengthens them. We can be filled by God, given power by his spirit and hope courageously in his son's full deliverance because we see a tomb that is empty. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about this passage. This is not the idea of you being strengthened like you go to a gym and you get bigger and bigger arms so that if someone comes out to you in an alley, you can punch him just once and he falls to the ground. But rather, you want to be strengthened in such a way that when the harshness of life comes back at you, you can withhold it and stand against it because you know that there is hope on the other side of this life that will dry every tear and crush every enemy. And so as things keep coming at the church of Christ, or as things keep coming at your family that that might cause you to wonder if you can ever survive it to the point where you would just rather be in heaven than be here, Paul is saying, be strengthened with all power, knowing that the God who saved you is the God who sustains you. Take rest in his glorious might because it is more than you will ever need. The outworking of his divine power is not in spectacular miracles, but is for great endurance and patience. The most wonderful Christians I know, and hear me out on this, the most wonderful Christians I know look incredibly tired, exhausted, but steadfast in their hope. Like 80 years of life have just destroyed the way they look, but their soul says, I delight in the work of the Lord and his faithfulness. And there are scars on my skin and there are scars in my heart, but let me tell you of the deeds of the Father. Finally, Paul prays that the Colossians will joyfully give thanks to the Father for us, for this also pleases him in every way. 
Thanksgiving and Paul's letters refer to the thankful mind that's expressed publicly, often loudly or joyfully. The regular offering of thanks to the Father is a mark of a true Christian. Even in the pain of life, we can remember how great the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make us a wretch his treasure. And then lastly, he says, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. Ironically, where the Father has qualified them, the Colossians are giving ear to those who want to disqualify them. You don't know the things that we know. You don't understand the mysterious ways of the world. And Paul is telling them, remember in your joyful giving of thanks, the one who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. Now, number two. I actually hope that's one of the things you remember about me is I always have like two points and then like five points and then three points and then finally a second point. (laughs) So number two on your outline. Number one, Paul writes to this church desiring that they would be filled with the knowledge of God. Number two, that they would be focused on the revealed grace of God that they would be focused on the revealed grace of God. Now, I don't know why the description of what Christ did is before the description of Christ himself. So if you keep reading on in Colossians in chapter chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, it is known as the preeminent picture of the glory of Christ, where his nature, as best we can understand it, is described to us. But I think there's something brilliant and catchy about first describing his work, and we're struck by this in other areas. You think about news stories and how are they promoted. The action that took place. There was a wreck on I-40 yesterday. Oh, I wonder what happened. Not just, oh, Bill was driving down the road. Oh, okay, who cares? Or, or maybe ESPN's 30 for 30. What if I told you that the greatest athlete in the world didn't even like the sport he played? Ooh, tell me about that guy. So here we have the greatest showcase of God's love for his people being told to God's people, and Paul wants them to be focused on this. These are people who are in danger of being distracted by mystical, aesthetic, super knowledge. Someone comes into town and says, everything you've been taught isn't the full story. I alone have the whole story. And Paul's saying, no, don't listen to that guy. Be focused on the one who did all that you needed. No Christ by the Spirit. Life isn't some Ouija board or karma-filled magic eight ball. Don't be tempted to hope for what's around you to settle your doubt or build your faith, but rather focus on what's been done for you to strengthen your faith and build your courage. Christ's earth-shattering death change the very nature and the aspiration of what true joy is and what true fulfillment is. If, if Hansen's album was a Christian album, it may have started with their aspiration, but what the last song would have been about the glory of God himself. Because that is the height of our joy. That is the height of our goal. His death allowed us to go from our death to now our everlasting life seeing that the narrow path to joy is all that we need. Satisfaction, total fulfillment has been completely provided for us. And he is, he is, Jesus is, the access to this Holy Father. So the focus of Colossians is, rather than gaining merit badge after merit badge of insight into the integral workings of God's plan, Paul wants these budding Christians 
to enjoy the full and certain knowledge of God's saving will revealed to them in the person of Jesus Christ that we can see and know about because of his actual work. So in verse 13, we see what Jesus did. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. The Lord is then defined as the one who delivered us from the domain of darkness. This short but tightly packed expression exhibits a number of key Pauline themes. But this language recalls mostly God's rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt and then from captivity in Babylon. And Paul envisions humanity outside of Christ as being helplessly under the domain of darkness. John Broadus, a theologian, about 150 years ago, wrote a list of reasons that man needs to be saved. You don't have to write these down, but the first one is, is man is described as spiritually dead. Man is described as spiritually blind. Man is described as a slave to his own sin. Man is described as incapable of knowing or discerning the things of the Spirit. Man in himself is incapable of changing himself. Man in himself is defiled in his own conscience. And also, man in himself is in great need of deliverance from the powers and darknesses of the world. The image of light just before this passage is appropriate because Paul often spoke of the light of the gospel shining into the darkness and penetrating the blindness of those who are perishing. When you think of yourself outside of Christ, you really are in a dark room by yourself and no one cares. Yet God in his love has delivered you from the domain of this darkness. But not only that, he has transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. God has picked up his people and transplanted them into a whole new territory. It's one thing for him to redeem us or deliver us, but it's a whole other thing of his glory and his mercy and his love for him to transfer us, not just into any old field, but to transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, later on, you'll read about this beloved son and you'll go, if that is God... If Jesus is God, then I bet his kingdom is pretty awesome. And the reality that out of God's love you were transferred into it shows just how rich and deep his mercy is for you. It is, it is cool for us to understand the precise nature of God's love for us. Often we tragically think of God like a begging dog at dinner time. Or as a boyfriend who stands outside your house playing music with a boombox. And it's even cool now in the last couple of years to say that God's love is reckless or it doesn't have an aim. But, but the all-knowing and all-powerful God doesn't work this way. His precise love is because he is a great shepherd. His focused love in his effort is because he is a seeking Savior, His determination in his delivery is because he knows the cost. He set up the sacrificial system. He gave value to the cost as man was made in his image. And so the cross where Christ hung is the exact weapon on the exact battlefield at the exact moment where God elected to crush the serpent and deliver his people. And, and not only that, but transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved son. And what Paul is saying is, dear church, everything else is totally lame compared to this. 
Don't be tempted by things that might come in and say that they're cool. Remind yourself of what being filled does for you and what being transformed does to you and what walking, how it pleases you, but also understand the foundation of all of this work is under the reality that God has delivered his people and transferred them into his kingdom. The redemption or the forgiveness of their sins, meaning the liberation, emphasizing here that the believers have been delivered and have received true forgiveness for their sins. Jesus liberates his people by his atoning work. Under the concept of redemption are included the words and topics that involve the setting free of God's people through the cross of Christ and into a greater service for him. You think about what it must mean to be picked. I've talked about that before in several ways. Always about baseball, I find. To be drafted onto the New York Yankees. Wouldn't you want to play for them? Out of some obscure high school in a dugout that has a, has a dirt floor. Yes, I'll go to Yankee Stadium and swing as hard as I can. Here is the God of the universe taking sinful people and placing it into the kingdom of his beloved son. And our reaction ought to be of great service to him. God sends his son to live how man was supposed to live in order to be a satisfying sacrifice for these men. And he died the way that men were deserving to die in order to pay the atoning death on man's behalf. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, man is delivered and rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son. Now, in conclusion, let let me remind you of what happened on a Saturday night, April 28, 1945. A commander of a prison did the unthinkable. Before sunset, Martin Gottfried Weiss had turned everything over to a group of prisoners and then fled along most of the other regular guards before darkness fell. All of this was because the next morning, April 29, 1945, both the 45th Thunderbird Division and the 42nd Rainbow Division with the 20th Armored Division between them were advancing toward Munich. But the Dachau concentration camp was directly in their path, just 10 miles outside of the city. At 10.15 a.m., soldiers on the ground received orders to liberate the Dachau camp, and the men approached the gates of the death camp just 45 minutes later. A Turkish journalist who was inside one of those camps later wrote this of the scene. The Americans were not simply advancing. They were running. They were flying. They were breaking all the rules of military conduct, mounting their pieces on captured trucks, using tractors, bicycles, carts, trailers, anything on wheels that they could get their hands on. And the 2nd Battalion, the 222nd Regiment, the 42nd Division was coming brazenly and prudently down the highway with its general in its lead. Their liberators were coming for them after years of torture and pain. Described from another view, Lieutenant Colonel Walter Phelan's wrote, several hundred yards inside the main gate, we encountered the concentration enclosure itself. There before us, behind an electrically charged barbed wire fence, stood a mass of cheering, half-mad men, women, and children, waving and shouting, begging for us to come. Happiness in their eyes, shouting, liberators have come for them. The noise was beyond comprehension. Though there was not a roof over us, it was echoing in our hearts forever. Every individual, over 32,000, who could hear a sound was cheering. 
And our hearts wept as we saw the tears of happiness fall down their cheeks as we broke down the wires and brought them out of the camp. A story like like this paints for us a small picture of what it physically looks like to be liberated, redeemed, delivered. And the deliverances of the concentration camps across Germany decades ago was one of the most triumphant accomplishments in human history as terror swiftly advanced across the face of the earth. Specific, calculated, and necessary force was taken to save millions and millions of people who were set to be starved, burned, or worked to death. But I think it is very important here to have a high view of these kind of deliverances like this in our minds because what it really shows is it shows an even higher view of the cross in the mind of God. Coming for his people to save them from their sins, them placing themselves in those camps. He submitted himself to the Father's perfect and good will by giving his very whole and perfect life over for, as a ransom. Specific, calculated, and necessary force was applied to him, Christ Jesus, on our behalf. And what Jesus did on the cross was deliver sinners from their despair by paying the debt that they incurred. He delivered them from the domain of darkness and offers us eternal life. His gift of grace is offered to you and to me when we call on him as our savior, when we recognize that we just naturally are sinful people and when we, when we are given an opportunity, we then are too a sinful people. Yet God in his grace sent his son to pay the debt that you and I deserved to bring on ourselves and he offers forgiveness, the redemption, the forgiveness of your sins to you. If you long for him, if you lean on him, if you trust in him, if you see him as preeminent, prominent, above everything else, where everything else pales in comparison when you call on the name of the Lord to save you, he saves you. And so we come this morning recognizing that this story was finished on the cross, but we get to rehearse it again and again this morning. So I'm thankful that in part of my last time with you, I can encourage you, as Paul has encouraged me through this word, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and to be focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, but also that we get to, one last time for me, get to declare the Lord's death until he returns. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he ate dinner with his disciples and as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing the bread, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he, and he held out the bread, and he said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom. So this morning, we get to come together and participate, or have a wedding rehearsal meal, if you will or proclaim the Lord's death until he returns by participating in the Lord's Supper together. So the Lord's Supper is a sign of the gospel that strongly says to us, to those around us, and to the world that the believer is not of Satan or of the world, but is rather Christ. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance in the New Testament that is, that is called on for us to participate in. And it's instituted by Jesus himself and it's practiced and proclaimed by the church in giving and receiving of food and drink whenever the church gathers until Christ's return. 
So brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, when, when we'll direct you in a minute, I encourage you to come to the table and eat and drink. And as an aside, I want, I want to encourage you to do one thing, because I see it here and I see it everywhere else. Remember that the Lord's Supper is not a funeral march, but is a practice of a wedding that we will be a part of. So when you come to the table, don't ho and hum, oh, it's quiet, oh, I'm sad. The Lord gave himself over to you. Take and eat, take and drink and remind yourself that one day we will do this with him. So eagerly come to the table if you are in Christ. If you're not a Christian, the bread and the cup is just not for you. This is something that that we call ourselves to do as Christians. Only those who have received Jesus should do this. Instead, I want to encourage you to use this time to consider the offering of forgiveness that Jesus offers you by placing your trust in him. Place your hope in him. You may not come forward for the Lord's Supper today, but you can come to Jesus now, today, and have eternal life.